You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. So, thank you so much, worship team. You have taken us into the heavenlies and when we sang that line that said, we want to stay here, boy, I wanted to stay there this morning. But I believe this is a, a word that God has given me and I'm just delighted to be amongst you this morning. Here we are one week after Easter Sunday. So what's been happening? We had a great service last Sunday. We celebrated Jesus rising from the dead. He had promised resurrection. The Bible declares his resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. I thought that would have got hallelujah at least, eh? Well, I say it again. He had promised his resurrection. The Bible declares his resurrection. We believe in his resurrection. Uh, Well, okay. (laughs) Let's hope it gets better, eh? Do you know, the resurrection is what seals the deal for us to be Christians. Until that resurrection, Jesus is a good man. Uh, He's out for the ordinary people. They love him. He's a great teacher. But the resurrection from the dead says this man is God. No one else could conquer death. Only God is able to conquer death. So what he says is truth. It's done, it's finished. But what's next? Where are we in that story just now? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I hope your your hope goes beyond that this morning. I'm sorry that Ian's still suffering with COVID because I went to the voice translation. I know he's loving it just now, so it's more a paraphrase than a translation, I know. But here's what it says there. If what we have hoped for in the anointed doesn't take us beyond this life, then we are world-class fools deserving everyone's pity. World-class fools. Following Jesus means eternal life, not just for this life. It begins now, but it goes on into eternity. If not, it's nothing. It's nothing. If we've only got hope for now, it's nothing. But if we read on into verse 20, back to my New International Version, it says there, but... I love the buts in scripture. I always look forward to what it's going to say next because but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Not many hallelujahs coming this morning, but I can cope, Lord. I don't need that, you know. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That's the part that gives us absolute hope. Jesus overcame death both spiritual and physical, by his own death. He paid the price for us. He came to this earth to give eternal life to all who believe in him. For those heartbroken disciples and followers, and hallelujah for us today, he came to give us eternal life. Jesus rose from the dead. 
That's where we are just now. He rose from the dead, but he spent time then teaching his disciples, equipping them to go out into the world, sharing this good news. Death is not the end. We have eternal hope because we have an eternal God. Now, I know that that is very hard for some people to take in. It's almost too hard, some people think, to believe. And maybe, maybe you're one of those people this morning. Well, I've got great news for you. If you want proof, the Bible says there are many convincing proofs. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. Many convincing proofs. So here's my text. It's just one verse. I'm trying to follow Tom. How many weeks has he been going through Philippians 1? Um, I'm not getting quite how he is, but, you know, I'm trying my best. So here's the verse. Acts 1 and verse 3. After his suffering, talking about Jesus, obviously. So after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, remember... It's the men who were there with him all the way, the disciples. They had watched him die. It was slow. It was painful. They were heartbroken. But Luke goes on. He doesn't finish there saying that. He goes on and he says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. He was equipping them. He was making sure they knew all about what he wanted them to do. And that's the period we're in now. Easter Sunday last week, what now? So let's have a look at three of these many convincing proofs. I'm sure you would be able to go and find many more that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has given us eternal life. So I want us just to look at three. The first is the empty tomb. The second is the eyewitnesses. And finally, and the one that I really want to concentrate on, the one that I feel really said that we have eternal life is the energizing of the disciples. They became different men following the resurrection. So first of all, let's go to the empty tomb. It's really a strange thing, I think anyway, that the enemies of Jesus were the ones who were so aware of the promise of the resurrection. And, and they went to great lengths to ensure that there could be no cons staged, that nothing could be done by the disciples to steal the body or do anything that would make it look as if he'd been resurrected. And actually, them doing that makes us know for sure that it couldn't have been staged. Matthew 27, 63 and 64, Joseph from Arimathea had gone and asked the authorities for the body of Jesus. And he'd taken that body and he laid it in a new tomb that was hewn from the rock. Never been used before. It was hewn from the rock and he rolled a large stone in front of it. Now that was Friday evening, start of Shabbat. And the next day, the chiefs and Pharisees, the chief priests, sorry, and the Pharisees went to Pilate. We're still in Shabbat, remember? That's not usual. But they go and they say, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So he gave the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. 
And you can understand that. My goodness, Jesus has only been teaching. He's been there and he's been proclaiming who he is. Not in so many words, but he's been showing who he was. So if he actually proves that he's, been, he's ris- risen from the dead, then that deception is going to be worse for the chief priests and the Pharisees. And, and Pilate did exactly what the, 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 these people had come and asked him to do. He posted soldiers, he posted guards, he put a seal on the stone so that there could be no tampering, no deception. And those guards kept watch. Now guards, we've talked about soldiers in Roman times and we know that those soldiers knew what it would cost them if they lost a prisoner, a dead one. They were going to make sure that they didn't let anything happen to that body. Now, the reason I said it's a bit strange that Jesus' enemies remembered the words of Jesus is that his followers seem to have forgotten. They've forgotten. They're so caught up in their grief. But they're also, they are scared men. How could this have happened? This was Jesus. He'd done nothing wrong. He'd been doing good. Everywhere he went, he was doing good. How could it be that he was killed like a common criminal? Such a grotesque and evil way to die, still known as one of the most horrible of executions. But they were also thinking, if it happened to Jesus, what if it happens to us? What's our fate now? And they completely forgot everything that Jesus had taught them. So here they are, they're hiding away. They're keeping a very low profile, except for the women. Oh, what can I say? Except for the women. Now, they'd forgotten the promise as well, like, I know. But do you know what? As soon as it was legally possible, as soon as Shabbat was over, they went to anoint the body. Matthew Henry makes a valid point when he says, hate is keener sighted than love. It took me a wee time thinking about that, and I realized the absolute truth in that. Hate is keener sighted than love. And it's true. Hate looks for all the little things to pick on, all the little things that you do, all the little things. But love, you just see love. Oh, but I look at David. Oh my goodness. I never see any faults. (laughs) Because I love him. I do see some of them, but I'll tell you about them later. (laughs) The Pharisees and the chief priests, they hated Jesus. He was everything they weren't. They weren't going to allow anything to happen that would, would not get rid of this troublemaker. They had got rid of him, they felt. So they were going to make sure that once and for all, this man was done away with. But, love that little word, Here's how Matthew puts it. Now, I read it last week. So there it is once again. It's up on the screen. I'm not going to read it to you. But here we have the women going to the tomb. You know what? If death couldn't hold Jesus, how could a sealed stone ever keep him in the tomb? Jesus was and is alive The women saw it first because they were the first to get up and go and see him. They went for the wrong reason, but they went because they wanted to do what they needed to do for a dead body. 
But it wasn't only his followers who saw the empty tomb. If you read on to verse 11 of Matthew 28, you'll see the guards. The guards knew he was alive. They'd been there. They saw what had happened. And they ran to tell the, the, uh, Jesus' enemies that, and made sure that they knew what had happened as well. And it goes on. And Matthew goes on and, and tells you that. And what did those chief priests and uh, scribes and Pharisees decide to do? Well, they did what we all do. They had a committee meeting. They all came together. They decided that they had to get rid of this man completely. I wonder why it was they didn't stop and think, maybe what he said is true. But I had so many conversations while I was working in Israel, so many conversations with Jews who said, we would never let that name be on our lips. Isn't that sad? That you wouldn't go looking to see if there's anything in it. But they didn't. They wanted him gone. And so they bribed the guards to tell a dreadful lie that still exists to this day. But what it really shows, all their precautions, all their panic, is that the resurrection happened. Otherwise, why the lies? The empty tomb is the first convincing proof that Jesus is alive. The second proof is the huge number of eyewitness accounts. We've already looked at one of them, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who ran to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint the body with spices. Now, every single one of the Gospels has accounts of this visit to the tomb that first Easter morning. It's extremely important. There's Luke's account as well. I'm just going to put them up so that you can see it. Don't think I need to read it to you. It's the same story that occurs time and time again. John also records the women and Peter and John going to the tomb because when the women came back and told the disciples, Peter and John took to their heels and ran to see for themselves. And this was all happening, of course, in Jerusalem. But it's not only in Jerusalem that there's proof of Jesus appearing to other people. So I think at this, when we're, we're at the stage between Easter Sunday and, and the Ascension, we, we've got to look at that situation that happened on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us that two of them, we don't know who they were, but they're walking to a village about seven miles outside Jerusalem. Emmaus, we know it as Emmaus. And these disciples are down. They are really down. Their heads are down. Their eyes are down. They're really beside themselves with grief. And they're just talking together about all that has happened. And they're looking and they're thinking about their hopes and their dreams. They've all been dashed to pieces. And then suddenly there's a stranger walking along beside them, asking questions. They're not worried about the stranger. He just kind of comes in and becomes part of the conversation. And he starts asking them questions about what's happened and why they're sad. And he lets them talk out their feelings. When I was looking at this, I realized what a great lesson there is in there for us. This is how Jesus speaks to hurting men. He listens as they pour out their hearts. His compassion and his care for them is so evident in this whole situation. He doesn't start quoting scripture immediately. He just walks along beside them. 
letting them talk about their loved one, letting them just have time to just grieve until he knew that they were ready to hear what he had to say to them. You know, our walk often has a lot more to say than our talk. And we need to stay really sensitive. Now, that's not an excuse for not telling out our witness of Jesus. But it's a walk and a talk. And the amazing thing about this discourse is it took them to recognizing Jesus. When? As he broke bread and gave thanks. That's amazing to me. And it was so lovely as we broke bread this morning because I knew what I was going to say. And it just brought an added dimension for me. Because we know that in verse 32 of Luke 24, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road? And he opened the scriptures to us. And they hightailed it back to Jerusalem where they should have stayed in the first place to encourage the other disciples. We very deliberately break bread together every week. It's a really important thing for us to do because it allows us time to get really focused on God again, to find him in among all the rubbish that's been affecting us all week, to put things right, to know his forgiveness. When we ask for forgiveness, he always will forgive us. And it's also a witness. It's a witness of who he is and what he's done for us. These two disciples recognized Jesus when he broke bread. I want to tell you what Selwyn Hughes says of verse 35 there. He says it's all too easy for the people we rub shoulders with every day to overshadow the spiritual realities which cannot be seen or touched. Our Lord seems to have anticipated this problem when he appointed for us the communion table. Do you ever stop and wonder why it is that we do it every week? I know it's in scripture, that's why we do it. But why did, we, why did Paul say, do this in remembrance of me? Well, knowing how powerfully the world would impinge upon us, he ordained regular seasons of remembrance in the life of the church when with the graphic symbols of his presence before us, we would deliberately and with set purpose call him to mind. How powerfully the Lord can make himself known in the breaking of bread. Thank you, Selwyn Hughes. I thought that summed up the communion table so beautifully. He reveals himself to us just as he did to those disciples. And it completely changed their lives and it completely changes our lives too. There's another disciple Jesus eventually um, appeared to. His name is Thomas. He gets bad press, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas. Do you think that's fair? He just wants proof. Same as many people today, he just wants proof. He wasn't there when Jesus came and spoke with the other disciples the first time. They're full of it. Oh, wow. They've seen him. They know for sure that he's, uh, he's risen from the dead. But then comes in Thomas and he's into this room where everybody's gushing with it. Everybody's got something to say. He spoke to me. He said this. And poor Thomas, he's there, out of it all. Do you ever go into a room and you just feel out of it? Poor Thomas. I'm not going to call him Doubting Thomas anymore. But Jesus does come to Thomas. And he shows him the wounds on his hands and on his body. 
And that's all Thomas wanted to see for himself. You know, Jesus hasn't changed. If you're looking for him, he'll come to you. Amen. Keep looking. Because you know what? What you'll find is he's actually the one looking for you. Christianity is about faith in God, but it's not a blind faith. We know him. We've seen him. We trust him. Then still finding eyewitnesses, we can turn to the Apostle Paul, and he tells the Corinthian church the good news he's preached to them. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and 6, he's told them what I've told you this morning about Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's telling them about the many people who were eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. And he says there was Peter and the twelve. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, after this, there appeared to be, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. More than 500. Well, our numbers are keeping growing. Eyewitnesses. In verse 7, James gets a special mention. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And here's the final one in verse 8. Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me. You can read about Paul's dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. It's dramatic to say the least. We'll never know what went on in Saul's mind as he neared Damascus, but we do know Christ burst upon him with a blinding light and the man who had laid so many low was himself made low. In that moment, Saul saw the staggering truth that Jesus, the tecton of Nazareth, now, I'm saying that because when we, went to, when we went up to Nazareth, we were told that Jesus was more a builder than a carpenter. And we only translate it as carpenter because at the time of translation, most of our houses were made of wood. Just thought I'd throw that in. So it's the tecton of Nazareth, which really means in Hebrew, a builder. Sorry, just had to throw that in. <laughs> but this was, it's also that staggering truth that Jesus was the one who, whose followers he was attacking and killing. He was none other than the creator of the universe. And it changed his life forever. An eyewitness proof. These were all honest people. Why would they lie? Why would they ever want to be Christians? Do you know in the first century how many Christians were killed for their faith? Paul's conversion story takes me to my third and final proof. And I think it's the most convincing proof of all and my real focus for this word this morning. The third proof is the energizing of the disciples. Listen, these disciples were devastated by the crucifixion. They weren't expecting it. Jesus kept telling them that it was going to happen, but it never actually sank right in. So when it happened, they were totally lost. They forgot all he had told them. They didn't even hang around to see how it would all play out. At best, they watched from a distance. And Matthew 26 and 56 finishes with these words. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? There's Jesus coming to the end of his life. He knew it was the end of his life. He knew what was going to happen. And all the disciples deserted him and fled. When Jesus was in Gethsemane wrestling in prayer, his disciples slept. 
when he was arrested, they ran away. Jesus knows how it is to feel lonely. You think you feel lonely this morning, and I know some people will. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows how it feels to be lonely like nobody cares. These two on the road to Emmaus, they were going home because they were devastated. They'd lost everything. They were giving up. But then, then the resurrection changed everything. Jesus was alive, so they knew that they would live also. Read on in Acts 2 and see how that all happened, how it was achieved through them. Nothing else mattered save making Jesus known. The fear changed to faith. Those doubting, scared men and women became dynamic witnesses. Didn't Tom describe them so well last week? Remember, they're in prison. They've been flogged. They're ordered not to speak of Jesus to anyone ever again. And then they're let go from prison on that warning. And what did they do? Well, they're straight back on the streets proclaiming Jesus is Lord, that he's alive. The former cowards become courageous followers. Almost every day they laid their lives on the line and they all bar one paid with their lives. Listen, people don't die for a lie. They saw it happen. First hand they saw it when he rose from the dead. They knew for absolute certain Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was and he is the Son of God. Thousands were saved through their witness. The church exists because of the change in these disciples. And it's lasted down through the years because the resurrected Jesus still reveals himself to men and women, boys and girls, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Godhead. The greatest proof of the resurrection is the change Christ makes in people's lives today. And so many here this morning can testify to that. I can testify to that. I know the change he's made in my life. I don't doubt him because I know he's there. Jesus is part of the Godhead, the second person. God wants relationship with us mortals and he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. Sending Jesus, his son, was the only way back to God. Sin got in the way, but Jesus' death and resurrection finished with that forever. Listen to this amazing truth. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I'm glad you're here this morning, Ian. I can hear you. Not hear many others, but that's the way it goes. Yep, Eddie, sorry, I'm hearing you. <laughs> you know, this is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament as to what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Paul says he becomes a completely new creation. You might look exactly the same on the outside, but you're a completely new creation. We sang a bit about creation this morning. I was so pleased that was in one of the songs. But if you look back in Genesis and think about the creation and what was there before God started his work, it says in, in Genesis that it was a form, there was a formlessness, there was a void, a meaningless vacuum and complete darkness. And then the spirit moved over this dark, empty, purposeless waste and out of chaos comes cosmos. It's exactly the same when Jesus makes a new creation. If you don't know him, 
He wants to change you. He wants to make you a new creation with a purpose and a meaning to life for this life and for the next. Because there is a next life, no matter what people believe, there is a next life. And we know we will spend eternity with God our Father. You can meet him by faith this morning. I'm going to read you something that Paul says in Romans 10. So it starts at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scriptures say, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. All you have to do to be another convincing proof of the resurrection. Please come and tell one of the leaders here if you want to become that new creation. Let us pray for you. Let us lead you to Jesus. And if you've done that recently on your own, which is perfectly acceptable, we want to rejoice with you. So come and tell us if he has met with you and you have met with him. And finally, let me speak to all of those who are already new creations. Let's go back to my text, to Acts 1 and verse 3. Jesus showed himself to be his followers and he proved himself risen from the dead. That brings us salvation. There's nothing else we need to do. But Luke goes on. He writes a whole new book about it and he calls it Acts. And we need to go from the gospel to Acts. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom he's still building. Even here in Bones, people don't value Bones, but my goodness, he's building kingdom here in Bones. It's what spurs us all on. It makes us family together. It makes us love each other. It makes us give time and talents and everything we have to follow his leading. It sees us look out for each other, encourage each other. Folks, we're doing it because we're building kingdom. And we want to see more and more people finding Jesus is the Son of God, giving himself to save us, not for number's sake, but for kingdom. He's building kingdom. He's done so much for us. We need to follow him. So let's make sure that our lives cry that out here. Jesus died for a lost world. We must live to bring that lost world to Jesus. So may God bless us all as we live and work to build kingdom that people will see and know that Jesus is alive and that he reigns. Amen. Amen.